Okay, we're going to study, we're starting our study on Revelation. We did some introductory material uh, Sunday night. If you didn't get a copy of the uh, introductory material, let me know. Uh, we'll get you one. And, uh, but tonight we're starting uh, going through. We're going to try to do a couple chapters a night. We may not be able to. Uh, the first uh, three chapters are sort of lengthy, and some of the other ones aren't so much. But uh, we'll go through quickly. Uh, you have an outline on the first, cha- uh, first two chapters. And, um, and I'll try to fill in a little bit of it. And uh, when we're done, if you want a copy of the expanded notes that I have, I'll be happy to share them with you. Uh, when we begin uh, the, uh, in chapter one, we have the, how I uh, outline it as the message from the glorified Christ. Uh, when Jesus was uh, about to be crucified, he, he asked the Father to glorify him with the glory that he had before. So we see Christ now in that, that glorified state as he is, has all authority in heaven and earth. And so uh, that comes into significance in some of the promises that he makes uh, that are made to those first century Christians. So it begins in verses 1 through 3 there, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must, short, must shortly take place. He sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all the things that he saw. Uh, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. So God was about to signify to John some things which would shortly take place. Uh, As I mentioned Sunday night, that idea of shortly take place uh, can mean that once something starts, it'll move rapidly. But when you look at that in addition to verse 3, the time is near, uh, it seems to suggest strongly that this is something that the visions that John would see were something that were going to happen in a relatively near uh, period of time. Um, Just some things here. Let's see what I have over here. Uh, Obviously said, as we talked about Sunday, uh, that there was some blessings in reading and hearing and keeping those words. Uh, And notice the word, the uh, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Uh, That's going to come up about four or five other times in the the text. And we're going to see where when he talks about the souls under the altar, they were there, they were martyred for the word of God the testimony of Jesus Christ. So he's talking about in those things, those that, that are faithful to God, faithful to his word, and, and some of the problems, in the, as in uh, chapter 6, uh, that um, arose because of their faithfulness. Beginning in chapter 4 through chapter 8, we have this greeting to the seven churches of Asia. Uh, John to the seven churches which are in J- Asia. Uh, if you look, there's, if I remember right, there's at least three other congregations of the Lord's people in Asia, uh, which suggests the idea of writing to the seven churches uh, has a much broader context than just those immediate churches. Uh, when we get into the um, chapter 2 and chapter 3, uh, he's going to say things like, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And we know from Colossians, or from uh, 1 Corinthians 4.17, and I think Colossians 4.16, 
that this message that was preached in one area or, or letters that were sent to one area were spread throughout other areas. So uh, like in Colossians 4.16, I believe, you know, Paul tells them uh, the letter that they received to uh, send over to the church that was at Laodicea and also to read the Colossians were to read the letter uh, that the Laodiceans had uh, received. So these messages, what, uh, were these letters were uh, yeah, distributed, thank you, to other churches. And so uh, the seven is a, a, in Revelation and in other aspects of the Bible is a number that often suggests completeness uh, so there's that thought there. So it's John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Uh, grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his, Christ, his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and he has made us kings and priests to his uh, God, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even though they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth uh, will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So grace and peace from God. Notice he says that God is the one who is who was and who is to come, the eternal God, the eternality of God, and from the seven spirits that were before him, or before his throne, over in Isaiah chapter, and I think there's the thought, the main thought there is that, that the seven, the complete spirit is referring, a way to referring to the Holy Spirit. But when you look over in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse one and two, um, we read, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And if you count those up, uh, there's seven there. So uh, it may have a reference to that, that, you know, that complete whatever uh, that Isaiah is referring to. And the message is from, uh, from uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, and he defines him or uh, describes him as the faithful witness. Uh, in Isaiah 55 and verse 4, we read, Indeed, I have given him, God speaking about his servant, given him as a witness to the people, a leader and a commander for, uh, to the people. And then in John chapter, 18, or chapter 8, verse 14, uh, Jesus said, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from and where I am going. And we just think about in our life how many times, you know, people have told us things and it wasn't true. Uh, but Jesus is the faithful witness. We know that what he says is true. Uh, he's from God. It's impossible. He is God and it's impossible for God to lie. He's also, it says, described here as the firstborn from the dead. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 through 23, uh, but now as Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man became, came death, 
By man also came, uh, came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and after those who are Christ at his coming. So one thought that is expressed here, uh, obviously Christ wasn't the first person to come back from the dead. Uh, when Christ, during his earthly ministry, he raised some individuals uh, from death. Uh, Lazarus being one of them. We go back to the time of, I think, Elijah and Elisha. I remember both of them, I think, or at least one of them raised uh, a son of, of, of one of the ladies from the, one of the son of one of the ladies, anyway, raised a young boy from the dead. So uh, it wasn't the first one. And some suggest that uh, when the text says here is the firstborn from the dead, and, and you probably heard this, uh, the first to rise and to die no more. And, and obviously there's that aspect of it. But there's also another aspect. And, and we find that in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18. Uh, he is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that all things he may have the preeminence. Uh, if you remember from the Old Testament, the firstborn child, the firstborn male, uh, was the preeminent child. In other words, when um, in the uh, patriarchal per, uh, period, the firstborn son, he became the, uh, the spiritual leader uh, of the family. And also, um, the firstborn son received a double portion of the inheritance. So if, if a man had four sons, he would divide his estate into five parcels, and the firstborn would get a double parcel. And so in the time of Joseph, you remember who was uh, Jacob's firstborn son? Reuben. But Reuben did something horrible. He, um, he slept with his father's concubine. And he lost that firstborn status. And so when Jacob went to bless Joseph's sons, Joseph had, instead of blessing Joseph, who did he bless? I just told you. His two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So Joseph became the preeminent son. And that he got the double blessing. A blessing for Manasseh, a blessing for Ephraim. So when it comes to the firstborn from the den, I, I lean toward the fact that Christ is talking about the preeminence of the Christ. He's a faithful witness. He's the preeminent from the, of the de those that are uh, risen from the dead. Also, it goes on to say uh, that he is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Uh, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, uh, Daniel has a vision about the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days. And it goes uh, in verses 13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, Coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Uh, so we see this authority that Christ has. He is a ruler of the kings of the earth. And of course, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 uh, Jesus told his disciples that all authority had been given to him in heaven and on earth. 
So here's Jesus, the first, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of earth, to him who loved us and washed us. I think the ESV would say uh, freed us. Is that right? Released us. Um, some of the, I think the New King James has a footnote, freed us uh, from our sins um, in his own blood and has made us kings. Uh, some um, have some of the translations, ESV say kingdom. Has made us a kingdom rather than kings. Yes. Okay. Now, the, the New King James says, has made us kings and priests. Uh, well, the word ends not right in the original text. So we would probably say, and what's the ESV read there? He's made us a kingdom, comma, priest, right? So has made us a kingdom, priest, unto God. So Christ here has made us a kingdom. We're in his kingdom. John's going to say that in verse 9. Uh, that he was their companion in the tribulation and kingdom and endurance or patience of Jesus Christ. And that um, he, we are priests to his, uh, uh, to, uh, his God and Father. Uh, Peter's going to say in 1 Peter, or did say in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, that we are a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Or maybe that's chapter, oh, that's 2 Peter. That we are, uh, you are living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Uh, chapter 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So we are a kingdom. We are Christ's kingdom, priest unto God. We don't have to go through a high priest like on earth like the Jews did, or even families of old when they went through the, the uh, family uh, priest. We can pray to God directly. And we have a high priest in heaven, Jesus the Christ, uh, whoever lives to make intercession for us. So we have uh, the eternal glory and dominion or power to, uh, that Christ has. Uh, he continues to love them. He continued to love them. He had loosed them from their sins. And he had made them a kingdom priest to God. And it says, Behold, he is coming with clouds. Every eye shall see him. Even they who pierced him, all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. So he's coming with the clouds. Uh, we turn over to, um, of course, the, um, when Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1, uh, the angels told them in the way that he left, he would come back in like, like manner. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it talks about when Christ comes, uh, those that are dead uh, will be resurrected. Those that are alive uh, will be changed and meet him in the clouds and be with him forevermore. But it says that every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. In Zechariah chapter 12, uh, verses 10 through 12, the prophet said, and I'll... I, I, beginning in verse 10, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for the firstborn. And that day there will be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning at Hadad Rumen in the plan of Megiddo. 
and the land shall mourn, every family by itself, the families of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves. And the thought seems to be that uh, John, or the vision that John has is, is here is that when, when Christ comes again, uh, obviously those that have rejected him are going to mirror, uh, uh, mourn over the fact that, that you know, he's come, they're not his, and they're going to suffer the consequences uh, of not obeying the gospel. And of course, it, predominantly in the first century, it was the Jews um, who rejected Christ. And so all tribes will mourn up because of him. And of course, in John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, uh, Jesus said, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, uh, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So then Christ identifies himself in, chapter, in verse 8, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, uh, who is and was and who is to come, the Al Almighty. So he identifies him as the eternal one, as being eternal. On the beginning and the end, the first the last, um, one who was, who, uh, who is, was, who is to come, and identifies himself as being part of Almighty, or being part of the Godhead, Almighty God. In Isaiah chapter 9, and verse 6 and 7, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So here's this message uh, that John is to give to the seven churches of Asia and to be distributed, I think, uh, to the rest of the churches, primarily in Asia because... They were the hotbed of persecution at this time. Uh, Asia there was, was the center for emperor worship. Uh, we're going to get into that when we get to the um, uh, looking at the seven congregations that the, are addressed. Uh, but it was the center of emperor worship, and it was the center of the, the cult that promoted that and, and, and aided in deceiving the people that, that Domitian uh, was God and um, all that was associated with that. Uh, obviously, Jesus identifying himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, uh, corresponds with John 1, 1 through 3. Then, in beginning in verse 9, uh, John has a vision of one like the Son of Man. And as we talked about in, in last week in the introduction and also in, uh, a couple of weeks ago um, when we looked at Revelation 20, um, if you were in a situation um, where you were suffering for the cause of Christ, where you were being persecuted, when, when your life was just falling apart uh, because of your faith in Christ, uh, the first thing that I would want to know is, Christ, are you still there? You know, I haven't, no one's heard from you, and, and, and approximately if we take the late date, which we are in this class, for approximately 60 years, you know, it's been about that since uh, Paul's vision. You know, no one's seen you. Are you still there? And obviously John giving this vision of a glorified Christ would be a, a comfort to them. And then the second question, uh, my, my second question would be, do you know what's going on? 
And as we go through chapter two and three, we see this, I know your works, I know what you're dealing with, I know your strengths, I know your weaknesses, here's what you need to do. If you do that, here's the blessings that are associated with it. And then the third thing, are you capable of doing anything? And then chapters four and five, we see the lamb being at the, the throne of God, the lamb that was slaughtered, that word slain there literally means slaughtered, and he's the one that's worthy to take these seals and to open them and to uh, institute God's plan uh, for his people. So it sort of lends to me when I think about it, these were questions that I would ask, and it seems that, that God by inspiration is answering these questions as we move through the text. Uh, so John was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Uh, in the spirit, well, I skipped part, let me see. Uh, John was a brother and companion or a partner, I think the ESV says, Fellow partaker, the New American Standard says, uh, to the saints of the seven churches of Asia. He was a partner with them in tribulation. Uh, Paul wrote to Timothy that all who uh, are godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Uh, he was also a partner with them in the kingdom. Uh, Colossians 1 verse 13, God had delivered the saints at Colossae from the power of darkness and conveyed them into the kingdom of the son of his love. Uh, he was also a partner with them in enduring trials as Jesus had. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, here is the patient of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus Christ. Uh, John tells us he was in exile in the Isle of Patmos, and he was there being exiled for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. He was there because of his faith in God and specifically in Jesus Christ as his Savior. Uh, he says he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Seems to suggest that was John was in some state which was re receptive to receiving a vision from God or that he was receiving a special revelation from God. Um, John heard a vo loud voice as of a trumpet saying he was the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. And the voice commands John to write what he sees and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. And so John's vision is, uh, we're in uh, verse 11. I am the Alpha Omega, the first and last. Write what you see in a book, excuse me, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned and see a voice uh, that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. So he sees seven golden lampstands. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, it tells us that the lampstands represent the seven churches. And in the midst of them, one like the Son of Man. Well, we just read that in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. This Son of Man uh, approaches the Ancient of Days. Uh, he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. All peoples, nations, uh, and languages should serve him. You know, we put this in the context of those first century Christians and they're being persecuted uh, by a, a pagan Roman leader and those that support him. You know, I'd want to know, you know, 
Do you have, are you still in authority? Are you still have all authority in heaven and earth? So you see in this vision, you know, John, this is being reiterated to John and, and affirmed to John. You know, he still rules in the kingdoms of men. Uh, and so, uh, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, who, if they were familiar with Daniel, would know here his Son of Man has dominions over all nations and powers, clothed with a garment down to the feet and clothed about with the chest with a golden band. Um, some believe that represented his, his being a high priest uh, after the order of Melchizedek, as he is in heaven. Uh, his hair and head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. Um, in Ghana and in many cultures, uh, white is not only in some a sense of uh, a color of purity, but it's also a color of victory. I think I've told you the story how one year Ted and I were in Ghana and a chief had been supposedly uh, unjustly thrown into prison and he got out and the city was just, you know, celebrating because he got out and all the Ghanaians were taking baby powder and putting it on and they were wearing white clothes and the ladies were wrapped in white cloths and things like that. And, and they caught, when they saw Ted and I, of course, you know, we're walking victory uh, because our skins were light and, and theirs were obviously darker. And so they pushed us to the front of the of the crowd and they pushed us into the chief's um, palace area and, and I can remember as we were walking in there there was a head pan which is a pan about that deep and about three foot around and it was filled to the top with blood uh, where they had sacrificed animals and you could see they had branches there where they had dipped them in the blood and, and put it around the door you know much like Moses did uh, in Egypt years ago. But this was all a sign of victory. So when you think about Christ, his head and hair were white, wool, and snow. There's a sense of purity. Obviously, God is holy. Uh, and, but there's also can be a sense of victory here, that, you know, that he's going to be victorious, which obviously he will be. Uh, his eyes were like a fiery flame. Uh, that phrase is used again in chapter 2 uh, when he's uh, to the angel at the church in Thyatira, write these things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flyer, fire or flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. In Daniel chapter 6, Daniel sees a vision, and in this vision, his, his body was like burl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sounds of his words like the voice of a multitude. So, there seems to be that reference back at, um, at Daniel. And his feet, feet were uh, like fine brass. The word that's translated fine brass is not used anyplace else uh, in the New Testament, uh, except when it's used later in chapter 2. Um, and it's not used in any other classical Greek, according to the reference that I have. So they don't know exactly what it means. You know, it could be like burnished brass, you know, or highly shining brass, or or refined brass, they don't know. Uh, so they translate, you might have a different, what does the ESV say on that verse for us? Okay, verse 15. Okay, yeah. So whatever it was, his feet were like fine brass, whatever that meant.
and his voice was like the sound or the roar of many waters. Anybody here ever been to Niagara Falls? Quiet, isn't it? You can, I can remember Shirley and I went there on our, where did we go on our honeymoon? <laughs> Niagara Falls. And I can remember waking up in the morning and, and uh, hearing this like background noise. And I couldn't figure out what it was. And it was the roar of the falls. And we were, I mean, we were three or four blocks away from it. Uh, and so you have that constant roar of that water. And so it says here, his feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. And his voice, the sound of many waters, roaring waters. And out of his right hand, seven stars. He had in his right hand uh, seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. So in his right hand were the seven stars. And in chapter, verse 20, it tells us those seven stars uh, are the angels or messengers of the seven churches. The word angelos uh, fundamentally means messenger. And the context determines what kind of messenger. Uh, so some translations say angels. Uh, some translations will say messengers. And out of his mouth are extended, the NET says, a sharp two-edged sword. Of course, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, uh, for the word of God is sharp and powerful, uh, living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Also, the Romans built their empire on a double-edged sword. It was called a gladius. And so that was sort of their symbol. That was their primary fighting tool. They had these shields that... Uh, I think we're about six foot high, and, and they had these swords. They could put these shields down, and they could stab someone. And so that's, you know, that was their primary weapon. They had other ones, uh, but that gladius was the primary weapon. And so here we see, and, and, and a lot of these symbols are, are uh, plays. I don't want to say plays on words, but, but are used in such a way to show that, that God, I mean, that God is the one in control. God is the power. Uh, the idea of the Alpha and the Omega. Some of the emperors would say, identify themselves as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And here Jesus is saying, I'm the true beginning and the end. I'm the one who is, who was, and will be. I'm the first and the last. And so as, as these first century readers would read these things, and they would hear, you know, these emperors and those supporting the emperor and that false system of religion. And they would hear them saying, you know, bow down to Domitian. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is Lord and, and God, God and, uh, Lord and God, and bow down to him. And, and these texts are showing the first century readers, no, you know, Jesus is Lord in Christ. He is the ruler and the kings of the man. He is the true Alpha and the Omega. He's the one that has the true double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And of course, there's also the, the, the idea of the word of God. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength, full strength, I think the ESV says, uh, the NIV says, in his brilliance. And of course, we think about Matthew chapter 17, uh, when Jesus was, oh no, it can't be time already. <sighs> I'm talking faster than I can think. Um, in Matthew chapter 17, when Jesus was transfigured, you know, his countenance, his visage became brilliant. And, and so we see this in this state of glorification. 
And John's response to the vision, he says, And when I saw him, I fell as dead at his feet. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And so, uh, you know, there's a sense that when you and I stand before God, uh, that we have a sense, we can have a sense of confidence. The Hebrew writer talks about approaching the throne with boldness. But there's also a sense it will be an awesome thing to stand before the living God. And you know, no, how, no matter how much confidence we may have, it's still you're in the presence of someone who is totally greater than us, beyond our rationality of understanding all that is about him. And so I, I can imagine John seeing this vision of the glorified Christ. You know, I'm sure there's probably not any, you'd have to be pretty hard-hearted uh, not to fall down like John did. Uh, and he says, do not be afraid. He laid his hand, right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am him who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and, or of Hades and death. So he charged John. He said he further identifies himself. He's the first and last. In Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 6, we read, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, beside me there is no God. Well, we understand that. We talked a little bit about that Sunday in our lesson. But here we are, put ourselves in that first century context. Here's Caesar saying, I want you to call me Lord and God. And here Jesus says, I'm the God. There's no other beside me. I am the first and last. And their minds would go back to Isaiah, most likely. I am the one who lives and who died, and behold, I am alive evermore. In Romans chapter 6, verse 9, we read about Christ having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. And of course, I have the keys to the Hades and death, uh, Matthew chapter 16, he tells Peter that, uh, that upon that rock, the confession that he is the Christ, he would build his church and the gates of Hades uh, shall not prevail against it. So Christ fur further identifies himself here as being divine, of having that authority, of having the, being the true power. He's the Alpha, the Omega. He is the true God. There is no other. Don't put your, don't worry about Caesar. I've got this. And he charged John, he says, uh, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. He charged John to write what he had seen, the things that are, the things will take place. I have a note I wanted to share with you on this. Uh, let's see if I can get to it. Uh, Ian Fair, he, he's um, a brother in Christ, he says of this verse, he says, write what you see and read what is happening and what is on the point of happening and what will take place. He writes that Revelation 119 is pivotal to understanding the, context, uh, the content of Revelation in an appropriate uh, inter, 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 
interpretation of the book. I don't think that's the one I want. If you take the um, if you take the futurist view, the things which uh, which will take place after this, we get to chapter four. It says after these things. Uh, the futurists take everything from chapter 4 as uh, in the future. They would take that as the rapture, the tribulation, uh, obviously the millennial reign of Christ. So Jesus charged John, uh, or the son of, uh, son of man there, the one like the son of man charged John to write what he had seen, the things which are, the things will take place after these things. Uh, the lampstands and stars are identified as the seven churches. And the Young's Literal Translation translates it instead messengers instead of angels. Any questions? I know I went through it like blazing fast, so obviously we're not going to make this in a quarter. We might have to split it up. So. Uh, so, any questions, comments? Yes, sir. Yeah, I believe he really saw it, you know. However, how God did that, I mean, I don't know whether he placed it in his mind or whatever, but John was given these different visions. And uh, I've, I've heard it uh, described what we're going to see as we move through Revelation. And I always, when I'm teaching it at school and talking to the students, you know, some of us are old enough, well, I even mentioned it the other day, are old enough to remember those things that would put in, it was like a round circle that had like slides on it. And you put it in this thing and you click it and you'd see these different scenes. You know, a lot of times it was, you know, foreign countries or thing. And, and I remember Brother Jackie used to describe it. You know, if you just picture that, you know, every time, John, every time this clicked, John was given a different vision of these things. And for them, you know, they, they, they pretty much, I would think, knew what was going on. And if, it, if they didn't understand the visions... You know, what would be the blessing of, of reading or hearing or, or even how could they keep um, the message of the book? You can come on in. And so they understood it. And the difficult thing for us is, is trying to put it in a first century context. What, what did these visions mean? And a lot of them uh, go back. I, I was looking at something and I'm like, I'm thinking four, there's supposedly... Uh, as I was looking through some of them, I didn't agree with some of them, but supposedly there's about 400, over 400 references to the Old Testament uh, in Revelation. I don't know if I'd agree as I looked at some of the ones that they're saying. Uh, they seem stretched a little bit, but there's obvi obviously a lot of the Old Testament in Revelation uh, that will help us maybe to understand as we go through these visions. And, and again, you know, if we look at these visions, and I'll, I'll stop here, we look at these visions, you know, when you go, when you go to an art gallery and, and you look, you know, I, I'm thinking about when my, um, if you've ever been down to the Ringling Museum, as you walk in, I think there's a big, is it a Monet? I don't know. It, there's a, there's a, a work of art on there that's probably, I'm saying it's probably 20 by 20 or 20 by 30. It's a huge painting. And, but when you look at it, I mean, there's this impression that you have. 
But when we look at art, we don't get there in there and, and we don't look at every eyebrow or everything like that. We take the picture as a whole. And, and when we're going through Revelation, we, we'll do that a lot. We'll look at the, what does this picture signify? What, what is, you know, when we look at this picture, what does it mean to us? And the Old Testament will help us with some of that. And some of it just, I think, life helps us. You know, when, when the skies go dark and the thunder crashes, that's not a good time. You know, so those type of things, I think, will help us to get the picture that, uh, that God was giving to John. All right, thank you for your attention, and we'll pick up on Chapter 2 and 3 next week.